I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Chris Phillips, a professor of history at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and author of the book Scouting and Scoring, How We Know What We Know About Baseball. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So today we're going to talk about a couple of things. Much of the conversation will be about your book, Scouting and Scoring, which is a prehistory of Michael Lewis's famous book, Moneyball. And we're also going to talk about your current project, which is about biostatistics as kind of the prehistory of personalized medicine. So with that, let's start with Scouting and Scoring, which was published a couple of years ago and comes out in paperback on opening day or thereabouts. Tell us a little bit about the book, how you came to write it, and the basic concept. Yes, I'm a baseball fan and a historian and a historian of science in particular. And one of the things that I noticed about baseball is that it really, partly due to Michael Lewis, partly due, I think, to the history of baseball itself, it became this great example of the way in which we know how the world works in a kind of traditional sense by looking at bodies, by evaluating, by judging, etc. And then all of a sudden you have what seems to be this brand new instinct to quantify, to have these kind of analytical wizards come in. And so I was interested in this distinction because I knew from the history of the sport that there was never really this stark distinction between what I call scoring, these the numbers, and scouting this kind of analytical or judgment based on people's bodies. And so in any case, I I was interested in this question of whether these are actually separate practices or the same practices and whether they're, you know, what, what we might say about the two of them together. What you find in the scoring part of the book is that scoring has been a part of baseball almost from the invention of the sport in the 19th century. And by the early 20th century, the National League has essentially established a bureaucracy to oversee the the scoring of games. And that by the late 60s, early 70s, baseball fans who are really interested in computing start to look at scoring in uh, far more sophisticated ways that ultimately changes how Major League Baseball professionals think about the sport. So get exactly right that this idea of scoring goes back for way more than a century and to some of the earliest people in the game who thought that the way you improve the game was actually by keeping data about players, about individual performances, about uh, how skilled or how scientific certain players were. And so I trace that over time, but you're exactly right. There's this second kind of what people might think of as a revolution that comes about in the 1980s in particular, Bill James being the most famous example. But there's a number of individuals involved here because they start to ask different kinds of questions, questions about value, questions about play-by-play, uh, what you should do next, strategy, you know, these questions. And so It's not that numbers are new in baseball. It's that the way people understand their role for the game changes over time. With the advent of free agency in 1976, 
valuing players becomes a, an exercise that's central to how franchises are run, which was much less true before that. Yeah. So after after free agency, I mean, players become incredibly expensive. So you can imagine when players are cheap, you can just stockpile them. You can stick them in the minor leagues, see who turns out to be good, and then promote them. But if players are expensive, and increasingly after the mid-1970s, players were exceedingly expensive, most clubs can't do that. You simply can't pay the top players top dollar. And so as a result, there becomes a premium on locating amateurs, that is to say, non-professional players in high school or college levels, and predicting which of those amateurs are going to have value three, five, seven years down the road, and drafting them, so signing them to long-term contracts. And so that's where all the emphasis goes. And so it's not that people move from thinking in terms of purely qualitative to quantitative, but rather the use of quantitative data changes dramatically after the draft and especially after free agency. And Chris, turning to the scouting piece of the book, baseball started a draft only in in 65, although for at least 20 years before then, major league teams had built kind of large scouting apparatuses. So Tell us about those bureaucracies that baseball teams built and how scouting changed after the creation of the draft. Scouting goes back to the early parts of the century, in fact. And for most of the time between, say, 1900 and the early 1960s, scouting was about selling a team to the player. That is to say, a scout would find a player and and try to sign him to a particular team as cheaply as possible. So whoever the player was, essentially, it was a combination of the player's skill and the team's finances. And you, you essentially try and sign up that player cheaply. But after the draft, the whole idea of scouting changes because now what you're actually doing as a scout is selling the player to the team because each team has to draft one player at a time and you go through all the teams and then you start over again. And so the premium now is not finding the cheap player who turns out to be a superstar, but rather having an ability of consistently drafting the best player available. And so instead of scouts going into prospects' homes and trying to emphasize all the virtues of the Washington Senators or the New York Yankees, instead what they do is they they write up reports on the players themselves that try and indicate which of the players they've seen is the best one to draft first, which one second, on and on and on. And and those reports are very detailed and and actually attempt to put a monetary value on the player, correct? That's right. So the idea of a monetary value goes back even before formal scouting reports in the sense that you always had to kind of clear $5,000 for this, $1,500 for that by your higher ups in the organization. But after the draft, now the scouting reports put both a, a dollar figure on each player and they put a single number, what they called an overall future potential that reduced all of the player's skills, both in the present and in the future, to a single number. So you could use these numbers to get a a rank order, a kind of draft list of your players from most desirable all the way down to least. 
And in a sense, though, the old pre-1965 method of scouting survives outside of the United States because the draft only applies to uh, players within the United States, correct? Right. North American players. And so the international market for players is a kind of free-for-all now in some ways, although they're, they're starting to regulate it far more than they used to. Uh, because of some scandals and uh, you know <laughs> abuses of the system. But you're exactly right that part of the reason why a lot of the major league clubs have put such an emphasis on finding uh, non-North American players is that it's still a place where you can sign you know whoever you want in most countries around the world. And so it's still a place where the old idea of scouting uh, prevails, where as long as you can sign a player to a contract, then you can uh, gain that player's playing time as cheaply as possible. Have clubs shifted to other means of talent acquisition as they've concluded that drafting is an extraordinarily imprecise exercise? Some have tried. So one of the things that I've noted uh, in the book is the attempt to kind of short circuit this problem of figuring out which 16-year-old bodies are going to become 26-year-old superstars. As you said, that's an incredibly hard problem. There's injuries to think about, there's skills, there's uh, bodily development, there's coachability. And so instead, they've tried to create these shortcuts where maybe it's a matter of the right physiological test, or maybe it's a matter of starting an academy and actually throwing a bunch of athletically skilled people in there and teaching them baseball. But none of those have really succeeded over the years in any way that has displaced the scout. Still, one of the the kind of crucial roles of the amateur scout is to try and identify these 16-year-old players who five, 10 years later will become major league stars. What analogies would you draw between the challenges that Major League Baseball has in identifying and pricing talent and other markets for for talent in the economy? In some ways, there's a similar story at hand. So, for instance, one of the examples I think about a lot is when you're trying to find a good teacher for your kids or find a, a good surgeon for your spouse, you ask similar questions, right? You ask questions about past performance. You ask questions about maybe statistics of, of complications from past surgeries. You might use qualitative remarks like asking people who's, who, who likes them or whether they would recommend them. And so you have some of the same kind of scouting and scoring methods. One of the big differences, though, is that in baseball, the gap between amateur players and professional players is just huge. And so it's even bigger than you might see in other professional sports. So for instance, in football, you know, college football is a fairly good indicator of professional football. And so the vast majority of people who get drafted in the early rounds of college football and who become professionals, that is, are really, they go right into professional football and they succeed. Baseball is not like that at all. So fewer than 10% of players who get drafted ever play in Major League Baseball. And and only about half of those who get drafted in the first round each year ever play a day in Major League Baseball. And so his numbers have improved a little bit more in recent years, but it's still really striking how hard it is to identify amateur players who are going to succeed at the pro level. Does that then push major league teams to focus more on talent development as opposed to talent acquisition? If talent acquisition, at least via the draft, is such a crapshoot, 
why devote all that much resources to it? Instead, focus your resources, especially if you're, say, the Kansas City Royals and not the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox, who presumably have larger budgets. Focus your resources on talent development. Have teams done that or tried that? The smart teams have, I, I must say, sadly, as a, as a follower of the Pittsburgh Pirates here locally, not all teams have succeeded at talent development, you know, so, but that often marks the really successful small market teams like the Tampa Bay Rays, for example, from less successful small market teams. And you're exactly right, by the way, to make a distinction with rich teams. Rich teams do not have to worry as much about talent acquisition because if they end up you know, getting lucky in the draft, they can always sell high on a particular player, but they can spend most of their time waiting until people succeed at the pro level and then just signing them to contracts. But small market teams don't have that luxury. Their models almost completely opposite to that, where their goal is to find people who turn out to be good, and then they'll sell high on them. And so they'll draft well and then sell high and then use that money then to try and get whatever else they can scrape together and and afford. So it's a completely different model between small market and big market teams. And, And turning back to Michael Lewis's book, how do you read that book today in light of your own research? Obviously, money had resonated way beyond baseball fans. It it was viewed as almost a a parable of modern economic life. How do you see that book and your own research in that light? So some things about the book stand up really well, I think. It's, first of all, a great story. There's no doubt about that. But I think some of the things that do not stand up so well are some of the simplifications in the book. So for for example, uh, this idea of there being starkly opposed analytic uh, ways of knowing the world and then qualitative ways of knowing the world are modern and traditional or superstitious and scientific, as he refers to them. That really hasn't played out in the way uh, that we might have thought in 2003. So one example of that is that the hardest problems actually most teams face now are integrating quantitative and qualitative judgments. It's not actually deciding between them. It's how do you bring them together? That's the hardest problem. And then another thing that hasn't aged so well in a kind of much broader beyond baseball sense is that one of the parts of the book that if you go back and read it with a kind of critical eye, you'll see players are treated essentially as numbers. They're not treated as humans. They're treated as as entirely dehumanized producers of hits and walks and, and outs. And I think over the subsequent years and decades, as we've seen the costs of moving to algorithmic or more data-driven solutions and the costs those have for individual people and the way we think about the kind of labor of specific workers, I think some of those types of lessons, which were not emphasized in the original book, really stand out now. That's a tension that's existed in how our markets view labor since at least the early 20th century. Frederick Taylor and the idea you could essentially turn peat factories into automatons, an early 20th century theorist of factory. That, that tension remains with us. It certainly wasn't invented uh, with Michael Lewis in the early 21st century. That's exactly right. It goes back much older. And in the context of baseball, a lot of the uh, tools of trying to measure talent play right into this kind of Taylorist idea. So, for instance, 
stopwatches used to measure speed or radar guns used to measure pitch velocity. These can be used in quite tailorist ways that is reducing people to a measurement or reducing skills to a kind of quantified a metric that can then be made more and more efficient over time. So you're exactly right. It's not new in the 21st century, but I think one of the ideas that is new is that it gets tied to this explicitly financial accounting. That is to say, it's not just about saying who's faster or whose pitch is better, but actually what are players worth and whether you're worth something on the basis of a kind of overall set of attributes in a, in a singular body or whether what you're worth is actually a kind of a calculated value of hits and errors and outs. And then finally on Moneyball, as all of Major League Baseball has moved to much more of a focus on analytics and quantification, d- does the fact that all of these teams have essentially a very similar framework for viewing players, paradoxically push them to more qualitative evaluation because that's the only place they can differentiate themselves as as managers of talent. So I think there's two ways of approaching that. One, One is to say, if you're a team, how do you evaluate your own talent? How do you evaluate your own manager? And in that case, I think your description is exactly right, that you would say, well, we have this whole analytics department to decide you know, who to promote or where to position players in the field. And so the real skill then for the manager on the field will be a kind of a qualitative or subjective skill. And that's, that's what we really care about. But I think there's another way of, of looking at it. And you're exactly right, by the way, that people, of course, have copied each other. And that is that we may be approaching as much of baseball that can be explained by kind of analytic methods. So you can imagine if you're explaining 80% of the game, then moving to 90% gives you a huge boost. But if you're explaining, say, 95% of the game, moving to 96 or 97% isn't that much of a boost. And what, what remains becomes even more important. So the kind of chance elements of people getting injured or, you know, a ball falling a certain way versus another then get magnified. And so you, you then have critics of these ways of operating that will then can be able to point even more effectively to the ways in which kind of a, a data analysis does not get you everything. So I think there's kind of a paradox there that the better you are at incorporating data sometimes, the more glaring the things that you're never able to actually uh, cover. And then taking this as a parable about the economy generally, about how companies manage talent, how far do you think you can extend that simile? The simile of scouting and scoring? Scouting and scoring to how a company might operate and managing its people. So I think that there's a there's a sense in which the kind of distinction between knowing holistically, knowing based on kind of subjective judgment versus data-driven analysis that to the extent to which those are two different ways of knowing, it's it applies in lots of different scenarios. And so I, I've already hinted at a couple of them in terms of thinking about, you know, evaluating, say, quality in healthcare, evaluating quality in education, or even evaluating kind of where what, what constitutes good policing or uh, good government operations. These are classically different ways of describing the world. But I think by the same token, 
what I try and do in the context of baseball is to really push on there being any easy division between these two ways of knowing that people who make subjective judgments often also rely on numbers in order to make those subjective judgments. And people who say they're entirely data-driven often are using data that is either derived from directly or indirectly subjective judgments. And so very frequently, you'll find the kind of harder you push on that distinction, the harder it is to make any distinction between those two ways of knowing about the world. And finally, tell us a little bit about your current research project into the history of biostatistics. So I got interested in this project because there's been a kind of realization over the last 20 or 30 years, and maybe even longer, depending on on how you envision it, but a realization that going to the doctors is really about risk. That is to say, it's about your own risk of disease, your own risk of future disease, the probability of your current disease being cured. And people don't talk anymore in absolutes. So this idea that this drug will definitely work for you or that this particular behavior will definitely cause cancer. Instead, it's all probabilistic. And I was interested in this because the the statistical analysis is all at the group level. That is, it was designed for epidemics. It was designed for public health. It was designed in these situations where the individuals largely were interchangeable. They just didn't matter. So you, you could say, well, 13 of 30 people got smallpox. And that's all you need to know is that it affects 13 out of 30 people. You can't tell which 13, but you don't need to if you're in the public health business. But if you're in the clinical medicine business, you really want to know which 13 people are going to get smallpox and you want to know which of those 13 will be cured by a particular type of treatment. And so it was this transition of thinking of these statistics and averages and risks at the aggregate level to thinking of them at the individual level that struck me as, as a really understudied but fascinating part of modern medicine. And so you you have a a lecture on YouTube that you gave at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton a couple of years ago, where you you look at the first piece of this history. You talk about, say, the longitudinal study into heart disease. Where does this research take you? Where, Where does it end up or where do you anticipate that it will end up? So I, one, one aspect of it that is really interesting to me, and you, you referenced the, the Framingham study, kind of very famous study that began in some ways as an old-fashioned epidemiological study, but ended as a very uh, kind of uh, you know, new, uh, in some sense, study of what your risks or what people like you risks of heart disease and heart attack might be. And so that transition, I think, one of the aspects of it that I find to be most interesting is that it really changes how we understand medicine in in our own lives, for example. So, for instance, if we want to ask what drugs work, you know, what we're really asking is when drugs were in clinical trials in general for a group of people, which drug performed better? And that's not really the same thing as which drug will work for me or which drug is best for me. And so then you might think, oh, well, we could use genetics or we could use more specific biomarkers. 
But even then, all you're doing is aggregating more data points or in a kind of math, you know, kind of way of thinking about it mathematically, you're just putting more variables into your vector. You know, you're just putting more, more things to consider. But what you're not doing is ever getting back to the individual. We've given up this dream of a kind of individual-centered medicine. And instead, what we're talking about is what is the medicine that's best for people like you, for the group of people that's most similar to you. And I think that's something that as kind of modern folks in the world, we haven't really grappled with what that means for us and for what a modern medicine might have in store for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was my pleasure. Awesome. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. 